I want you to know that today we're going to talk about a uh, sensitive topic. And so if you've got some happy thoughts, think about those right now because we're going to deal with the idea of depression this morning. So for me, I'll be reflecting on the Super Bowl throughout the duration of this series. And uh, you know, I want you to know if you've ever wondered why the Patriots keep winning so many Super Bowls, I'll tell you the secret. Everyone thinks it's Belichick and Brady, but it's not. It's every time I talk about the Patriots winning, they always win. And so it's the magic of the pulpit that the Lord uses here. So all that to say, go Jazz, right? Uh, can, I get some, <laughs> can I get some support at least on the local team, right? <laughs> go Jazz. Um, but we are going to be talking about uh, the idea of depression. And I, and I know this is a, a difficult topic. And we typically as a church, I, I, if we pick a season to discuss this subject, I, I would say the most favorable season would be this time of year. Uh, because we all are hunkered in, you've battled sickness, you can't get outside as much. And, and uh, I think seasonal depression is something people tend to, uh, to deal with. And so following that thought, this topic related to 1 Kings chapter 19, I think fits wonderfully uh, to our, our season. And, and this section is such a good portion of scripture, uh, I think, that God can use to speak into our lives. Because if, if you've followed along with us on the, the life of Elijah... Uh, you can get to the place where you start to picture him as a, as a spiritual giant. And when you try to compare yourself to someone like Elijah, uh, you feel inept. Like you think, here's Elijah, God called him, he jumped on the train, he was on board, he pursued after God. But when God did that for me, I, I, I didn't get on the train. I failed to do that years ago. And in fact, I, I did get on the train a little late in life, but every once in a while, I just keep jumping off that train. So I'm not like Elijah. He's, he seems to have it all together, and, and this isn't true for my life. And, and I, I want you to know, First know, Kings chapter 19, if that's your thought of Elijah, it, it, it is such a beautiful chapter now to consider how God continues to work in his life because this chapter identifies the frailty of really humanity and especially in the life of Elijah. He gets discouraged, he struggles, and, and he has depression. And so when you, when you look at this in the beginning of this chapter, chapter 19, the first few verses, it says this. Now, Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. So you remember last week we talked about Mount Carmel and Elijah tells all the prophets to go to meet him at Mount Car- Carmel, the false gods, 850 of them. They go on Mount Carmel. Uh, Elijah calls down thunder and demonstrates his God is the true God. And the false prophets couldn't demonstrate the same thing about their God. And right after that, the prophets are slaughtered. The false prophets are slaughtered. And Ahab is there during that event, but Jezebel isn't. So Ahab goes and tells this to Jezebel, all that Elijah had done and now, and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword, which that's another theological topic we will deal with. Okay. But, but he he kills them all with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me. And even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And Elijah was afraid. He rose and he ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Let me stop right there for just a minute. Um, Elijah, when you think about his life to this point, um, we've seen him as a a tremendous, God-fearing, powerful individual uh, in his faith before the Lord. And Ahab comes before Jezebel and it's showing us that Jezebel really carries the authority for Israel and Jezebel takes a stand, threatens to kill Elijah and Elijah runs. Now we, we know from studying this together that Elijah, where he is in this time period is he is in the Northern tribes of Israel. Remember Israel's had a civil war. There's 10 tribes to the North, two tribes went to the South and Elijah's with the 10 tribes ministering to them. The Northern tribes never had a godly king. 
And Elijah is used by the Lord to go to speak truth into their lives. And, and when Elijah does this, Jezebel goes for Elijah's life. And Elijah freaks out and he runs. After showing all of his faith, he, he goes before Ahab at one point and he says, look, if there's going to be a drought for three years, my name's Elijah and the Lord is my God. And then there's this famine, Elijah, in the middle of the famine, he's faithful to the Lord when he goes to the Kareth Ravine and Zarephath with the widow. And then he goes on Mount Carmel before all of these false prophets. Elijah stays true to his faith. And now all of a sudden he walks in fear. I mean, at one point he even told the widow in chapter 17, don't be afraid. Now he, now he is afraid. So much so that he leaves the northern part of Israel and he travels into Judah. And it tells us he goes to Beersheba. And Beersheba is the southernmost town of Judah. I mean, he literally went as far as he could go. And after going that far, he, he leaves his servant who's going with him. And he goes 15 miles further into the wilderness by himself. He's so afraid that Jezebel's spies are going to find him that he just isolates himself from everyone and he runs. And then in verse he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said it is enough now O Lord take my life for I'm no better than my father's Elijah's words are suicidal a tough place I think about in my own family's life, the impact those words being lived out has had on us. I asked my wife if I could just share just a brief story, but um, just a little portion of it. It's her story to tell, but two months after we were married, um, we were working a lot of hours in order to move back to Utah to start this church. And my wife was working late one evening, and I went to this class that my church was offering on on uh, marriage, how to have the great marriage. And so, you know, two months into this, I'm the perfect husband. I haven't messed up yet, right? So I got to keep the streak alive. So I remember attending this marriage conference, and we're in this room, and this room was set up in such a way it was full, but the only way into this room was in the middle of, of the room. And I knew she was working, but I didn't care. I was going to attend it anyway because I wanted to be the kind of husband that God called me to be for her. And we're all sitting in this room, and I remember I'm on the opposite side of this door, and all of a sudden in walks my wife, and she's supposed to be at work. But it was one of those moments where her face had such brokenness on it. The whole room just stops. And everybody's attention is on her. And all she says is, my mom is gone. All of a sudden, your world, right? So small. Two months into marriage, I remember going up to the home, going through everything, trying to figure out how to love on my wife. And the first funeral, being a pastor, a new pastor, the first funeral I ever have to lead is for my mother-in-law. Depression's a serious thing. And sometimes the consequences that come along with it, people can sometimes make long-term decisions towards temporary problems. You know, I think about the extreme depression will bring as regards to suicide. People often ask questions of, of suicide. One of the most prominent ones I think I hear is, um, if someone commits suicide, uh, do they go to hell? 
And I, I want you to know um, that suicide has nothing to do with whether or not someone goes to heaven or hell. Suicide is a reflection of something deep happening in the life of an individual. And it also acknowledges the need to gather around, circle the, ra- uh, the wagons around a family that's going through difficulty. Um, but if, if you believe that suicide sends someone to hell, I want you to know that um, that demonstrates that you don't understand the gospel. Uh, the, the gospel for us is our salvation isn't based on what we do or don't do. It's based on what Jesus has done for us. When Jesus hung on the cross, he died for your sins before you would even commit them. Right? And he calls you by faith to trust in him for that sacrifice. And so that's why as a believer today, if I, tr- if I have trusted in Jesus, I don't have to keep asking Jesus for my salvation. When I come to Jesus for my salvation, he covers all of my life. The good things and the stupid things. His cross is sufficient. In fact, uh, just, just last night in, in spending time with the Lord, I, I was doing some devotions out of Revelation. And one of the verses the Lord used in my life uh, just to reflect on was Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. And I didn't, I didn't even think about sharing it until this morning. But in, in Revelation 1, I want you to hear how Jesus describes this. He says, or John's writing this about Jesus. And from Jesus, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us, and released us from our sins by his blood. It's interesting when he says he loves us and released us from our sins because he, it's in two tenses here. When it says he loves us, it's in the present tense. When it says he's released us from our sins, it's in the past tense. When Jesus covered your sins, if you trust in Jesus, it is sufficient, paid in full. And because Jesus covers your sins actively, he loves you where you are. Jesus knows you're not perfect. But what suicide demonstrates, what depression, I think, in general demonstrates is, is a place to be a friend. To make your presence known, to love and to listen. You know, I find oftentimes when people go through hardships, we as people, we want to have the magic words to take away the pain. And oftentimes we'll just say things to try to make it better. Um, or we'll try to be the people that bring the silver lining. Oh, that's bad. Well, at least... And we sort of walk our way from their pain because of that. You know, that's, that's hard to hear. But at least, and it's like you're abandoning where they are to just get them to focus on something else. But they want you to meet them where they are. And I find sometimes in those moments, it's far better not to say anything and just listen. Love them. Show that you care. Your presence matters. People know that words can't fix things. But your presence shows that you are, you, you are concerned for them and you care about them. In, in regards to depression, um, it's interesting when you just read studies on depression. The American Medical Association says 12% of men, 20, 26% of women will experience major depression during their lifetime. In, in fact, um, I was reading a study that said pastors actually tend to rank on the manic depressive scale more than most people because they, you know, they come on like a Sunday morning, you really share this message with really high highs that follow really low lows and you just walk life with people. It goes like this, like they usually are there for the high moments or the low moments, right? And so, and so it tends to take you on the emotional gamut. And, and in the study that I was reading, Matthew uh, 
Stanford, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Baylor University, said one out of every four pastors is depressed. Now, I'm not giving that stat to, to secretly tell you that, you know, I got this battle going on. I, I feel fine right now in my life. But, but it's just an interesting statistic to just recognize in life that, that it's something that people deal with. And learning how to deal with it becomes important. And I want to tell you this morning, we're, we're going to talk about this topic. And, and I realize in our lives we encounter it for de- depression in different ways for different reasons. So I'm not going to sit here and tell you, I'm going to give you everything as it relates to your life. And it's going to fit you perfectly. It, it, it matters where you're coming from. But what we're going to do is we're going to look at the life of Elijah as he struggled with it from these moments. And use Elijah's story to speak truth in our own lives as we recognize as, as people we battle with things as well. So what do we learn from Elijah? It tells us in verse 3 that Elijah ran because he was afraid. Verse 4, he goes into a day's journey by himself, requests that he would die. And in verse 5, he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. If you think about Elijah's story, Elijah's depression really came after large life events. Um, I think one of the most vulnerable moments for us as people come after significant life changes. In fact, counselors will often say that the five most stressful things, life events that someone can go through that might put you in a place to begin to feel depression is, is number one, the death of a loved one, number two, divorce, number three, moving, number four, major illness or injury, or number five, job loss. If you go through any of those events in your life, you should be able to stop within those moments and think, you know, whatever you go through now that you've, you've had this happen or you've, you're going in the, through the middle of this, that, that it's okay in these moments to not feel okay. <laughs> in fact, you should expect it. With significant life change comes adjustment. A new normal. You think about the life of Elijah for three years. He found his identity as it related to confronting Ahab, surviving uh, this, this drought that was taking place that would lead to Mount Carmel. Now all those events have transpired and now what? Job change and a move from the top all the way to the top in Israel down as far south as he could go. The stress wrapped up in his old identity the moment happens on the top of Mount Carmel and then on the top of a mountain, the only place that you can go from there is down. When you go through significant life change, you should prepare yourself from the battle that might happen within. And if you battle with depression, one of the things that I've found tremendous encouragement in my life is, is that some of God's greatest servants battled depression. Uh, Moses, in, in Numbers chapter 11, and starting in verse 10, he asked God to take his life because it had become so hectic, he didn't feel like he could maintain it. Jonah was frustrated. In Jonah chapter 4, verse 3, asked God to take his life. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, said he despaired of life. Elijah, in these moments, the same thing. If you read the Psalms at all, it seems like King David every day is that way. In fact, in, in Psalm 30, uh, 38, verse 6, it says, uh, David says, I'm, I'm bent over and greatly bowed down. I go mourning all day long. I am benumbed, in, in verse 8, and badly crushed. I groan because of the agitation of my heart. One of my favorite people to read, um, I even have one of his books in my backpack this morning, Charles Spurgeon. 
Paul Spurgeon in history, some people will say, apart from the Apostle Paul, no one in after New Testament time has done more for Christianity than Charles Spurgeon. He's referred to as the prince of, pre- of preachers. Charles Spurgeon, in a day when there was no amplification, had a church of up to 20,000 people. And Charles Spurgeon battled depression greatly. I think it was one of the reasons that he was such a great preacher is because he understood the wrestling that took place within his soul. And God used Spurgeon to start some like 80 plus ministries in his lifetime. Seeing him struggle, seeing God's faithful struggle, it helps you to feel a little normal, doesn't it? You ever get to that place in life where you, you look around, you, you're, you're, going, you're experiencing something, you're going through something, you see everyone else around you just kind of reacting different, you start thinking, am I crazy? Like, I feel like I'm in reality, but does it feel like anyone else around me is there? And all of a sudden you meet that person that's going through that same experience with you, and they, they just describe it without maybe even knowing that you're in it. They just describe it, and you're like, that's exactly where I am. Like, I'm normal, or at least if we're both crazy, we're going to be crazy together, right? It's like, there, there's this comfort in knowing that. Elijah struggles in this life event. It's time to pause in our, in our hearts and just ask, what, what major life events are you going through? And if you're going through them, it's okay to not feel okay. Give yourself some grace. Don't place your expectation beyond where you are. Not only that, but uh, verse four tells us where Elijah got lost, he, he actually gets lost. Let me back up for a minute. He gets lost in, in self-pity. Look, look at verse four. He says, um, but he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the juniper tree and he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, take my life. And then listen to this. For I am not better than my father's. Self-pity. Self-pity is a powerful, toxic emotion. It will lie to you, it will exaggerate, it will drive you to tears, and in a worst case scenario, bring you to the place of wishing that you were dead. And this is where Elijah is. For I am no better than my father's, he says. And what's the problem with that? I would think if, if God were just to respond to this statement immediately, where he says, I, I am no better than my father's, it would be to say this, Elijah, whoever said you had to be? Who said? Why is, why is that what is important? No, nobody told him he had to be better than his father's. In fact, in this room this morning, like, we're, we're, we're not better than anyone else, nor did God make us beneath anyone else. God made us all equal. Our goal in life shouldn't be to be better than, than other people. And so Elijah, in his disappointment, he's falling into this self-pity because he set this standard for himself that, that's impossible. And God never told him he needed to, to be better than anyone else. You know, in these moments, I'm glad Elijah is giving up that identity of trying to be better than others. It's, it's a losing battle. But, you know, it needs to be done in a healthy way. Not to simply look at it defeated to say that you and your own strength could never do this, but, but rather to give up that battle of trying to be better than others because your identity isn't about being better than others. Your identity is who Jesus created you to be. And when we create an unrealistic standard in ourselves and we can't live up to it, it leads to depression. And I'll tell you, one of the most dangerous things that we play today is the comparison game. 
I, I think that this section, this verse, this phrase, I feel like from this point, we should write a letter to Utah. Dear Utah, we see the perfection of life that you portray on the outside, but we aren't fooled. We know that while you try to live up to the standard of the Joneses beside you, there is brokenness on the inside. Who told you you had to be better than anyone else? And why strive to do that? Because God doesn't call you to be like everyone else. To not play the comparison game. God rather calls you to live to be who he has called you to be. Don't try to be like other people. Be the person God gifted you to be. That's why he made you. Don't let other people create your standard. Let God create it. Because God is the one that's always loving, always affirming, always accepting, always faithful to uphold you. I know it can even get that for pastors in the pastoral world. Like if I just use my own situation for comparison, like you think about pastors and churches and you see success or whatever you might deem success and you compare that to yourself or you think in your own work environment, you might compare yourself to other people and you'd say to yourself, I can't be like them. God never called you to be like them. And so when we set that standard for ourselves and we can't achieve that standard, what happens is we find ourselves that we're not content to to, to live the way that God has blessed you to live. And rather than be thankful for when God works in us and in others, we get jealous or we get depressed or we get defeated and angry or, or, or even worse, we achieve our goals and when we look at other people, we become arrogant and proud. And our self-imposed standards. Elijah got lost in the self-pity. Because his standard in life was to be better than others. But that's not who God called him to be. Guys, are you comparing yourself? I would encourage you, give yourself grace. Don't pressure yourself into being someone else. Rather, be who God made you to be faithfully before him. Can I tell you, God's aware of where you are. He knows what you have. He knows what your strengths are. He knows what your limitations are. Just be faithful with who God made you to be. Don't put those standards of other people on you. But look to Jesus. Elijah not only got lost in the self-pity, but he was also physically exhausted and emotionally spent. For years, Elijah had lived on the edge. He was hunted by man, uh, considered by the king to be public enemy number one. We saw last week, Obadiah came to Elijah and said in chapter 18, verse 10, that, that Ahab went to all the kingdoms and he made the kingdom swear that you weren't hiding there because he wants to kill you. And so Elijah's life, he was exhausted. He was emotionally spent. There's a Greek proverb that says this, you will break the bow if you always keep it bent. (laughs) Some of us are worn out and depressed, honestly, because we should be. How else is God going to get you to slow down? I mean, when you put the RPMs in red all day long, something's going to give, right? 
And you see in the life of Elijah, he, he's worn out in these moments. And, and, you know, I think about that for us as a church. Like Utah is the youngest state in America, which means families are young and kids take time. And your number one ministry should be to your family. Church isn't here to wear you out, but to encourage you. It's important to rest. I find in my own life that if I ever feel down, I'll say this to my wife frequently, even if she says that she is, you should, you should rest. <laughs> sleep does wonders for the soul. Not only sleep, but even eating right does wonders for the soul. And, and you see in, in the life of Elijah, in verse five, it says this, he lay down under, uh, under a juniper tree and behold, there was an angel touching him and he said to him, arise and eat. And then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stone and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came to him a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. Um, I love this. The first thing in the middle of the struggle that God offers to Elijah doesn't judge him, doesn't say what's wrong with you, doesn't say, Hey, I got something else for you. Rest and eat. Rest and eat. If anyone's got superpowers, it's Elijah. And Elijah needs rest and eat. We're not Superman and Superwoman in here. Rest and eat. I mean, take time to enjoy the life around you, right? And so Elijah is exhausted in these moments. And, and so we ask ourselves, are you wearing yourself out? Do you need to cut back? Do you need to lower your expectations and give yourself grace? Next, I would say this in Elijah in verses 9. He says, then he came there to a cave and lodged there. Um, this mountain, Horeb, is also Mount Sinai. Another name for Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is where God spoke to Moses and gave him uh, the Ten Commandments. And he came and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord, and behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rendering the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. Let me stop here and say this. And God asked Elijah, Elijah, why are you here? Elijah goes on to explain the story of everything that's happened. But you know what Elijah does? He exaggerates his position rather than embrace really the certainty of God's promises. Elijah wasn't thinking clearly, nor do I think he was thinking truthfully. If you tell yourself enough lies, eventually you'll believe it. And I think the most dangerous lie that we can tell ourselves isn't an outright lie. It's it's a half-truth. Um, there's a story, I forget which book it comes in, where a devil and one of his cohorts are walking along the road and, and they're watching a man in front of them walk and, and the man bends over and picks up something shiny and, and the cohort looks at the devil and says, what did he pick up? And, he's, and the devil said, a piece of truth. And the cohort starts to freak out. Ah, he's got the truth. What are you gonna do about it? And then the devil said, nothing. I'll just see he makes a religion out of it. It's just a piece. It doesn't have the whole truth, right? It's dangerous. Half-truths. And with Elijah in these moments, he, he tells God the story, but then he ends it with this. I, I alone am left. I'm all by myself. And the reality is, is it's not true. 
But yet Elijah lives in that truth. And so on, on Mount Horeb, what God starts to do is he starts to shake some things up. It tells you this great strong wind and, and this rumbling takes place and it, and it breaks up the rocks. And, and it goes on from there that uh, in verse 4... But the Lord was not in the wind. Here we go. Verse 11. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Elijah shares the same story again with the Lord, believing this same statement. But I love that God is patient with him. Um, two things God does in this story. One, he shows his power. His presence, right? Shakes this up. He gets Elijah's attention. But then when God talks to him, his tone changes. He does it gently. Elijah, recognize who I am. And I want to whisper into that soul. I want you to hear this truth, Elijah. Here you are feeling this way because you believe this, but this isn't true. And then God in verse 15 says this, Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you've arrived, you shall anoint Hazel king of Aram over Aram and Jehu the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel and Elijah the son of Shaphat of Abel-Mahomah and you shall anoint as prophet in your place. You just make those words up, okay? You say them confidently, people believe it. It shall come about the one who escaped from the sword of Hazel, Jehu shall put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elijah, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Elijah, you're not alone. Elijah, that's not true. Elijah, reflect in the truth of of your Lord. Half-truths are dangerous. It's to ask us, what lies do you tell yourself? How does God view you? And how do you view you? Are they the same? Look, I understand we all have a past. Um, In fact, you'll never embrace Jesus until you recognize the sin in your life that needs Jesus. But Jesus isn't one that wants you to live in your past. Jesus is one that gives you a future. He makes all things new. And when God looks at you, because when Jesus died on the cross, that was sufficient. When God looks at you, he sees the beauty of Jesus over your life. Because what God thinks about when he sees you in Christ is your future, not your past. And so the way that we see ourselves should, should match the way God sees us in that identity with him, that we are made new in Christ. And so the truths that we tell ourselves become important. It should be the same, how God views us, how we view ourselves in Jesus. To recognize sometimes as human beings, we tend to focus on our past, but rather God is interested in our future. The last thing Elijah does in the story is he separates himself from strengthening relationships. 
Now, you read in the story that Elijah runs all the way from the top, clear down to the bottom. He has one servant with him, and he abandons that servant and goes for 15 miles by himself and sleeps under a juniper tree, which at best is only 12 feet tall. There is no way this guy's out of the sun. And he separates himself. But God creates us for relationship. And knowing that, God brings companionship into the life of Elijah. It tells us in the previous verses we just read and in verse 19. So he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat. And while he was plowing with the 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th, and Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother that I may follow you. Now, some of you guys may be reading that thinking, you know, anybody ever throws a mantle on me, I am not going to run after them like there's my best friend, right? But let me explain what's happening here is uh, in, in Elijah's day when a prophet would come beside you and they would throw their, they put their cloak on you. That's really what it is. It, it was a passing of authority and power and position. And so what Elijah is saying is that he sees Elijah as the one that will replace him in the position that he's carried for Israel. It, it's a position of honor to be selected in this way. And so that's why Elijah immediately gets up and, and, and follows after Elijah. Strengthening relationships are those that encourage you to be who God has called you to be. God's not designed us to be hermits in a cave, but to find companionship in Christ, to be encouraged in him. There's a thing in counseling that's referenced as preventative counseling. It begins in healthy community. The reason community becomes important to build is because when you build community today, it helps you in the struggle tomorrow. If you just go looking for community when you're in the struggle rather than having built healthy community before it happens, sometimes it doesn't feel, un- it doesn't feel authentic and therefore people will often reject it. But when you begin investing in relationships now to speak into one another's life, when adversity comes, you've got an Elijah to run with you. And so building healthy community becomes important for uh, the sustainability, of, I think, of a healthy life. And, and God gives Elijah and Elisha to run with him. And so it should be in our lives that God calls us to pour into people, but God also calls us to walk alongside people, to be encouraged in one another. And so it, it says that he threw his mantle, and, and then of Elisha, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, please let me kiss my father and my mother that I, may, I will follow you. And he said, to him, go back for what I have done to you. So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implement, uh, implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Um, interesting thought. You, know, you kind of ask the question, what Elijah is asking Elisha to do is, it's, it can be difficult. And you want to know how in Elisha is to follow after Elijah? He takes the very animals that were providing for his life and he sacrifices them. We all need a friend like that. In the heat of the moment, whatever it takes to be there by your side and as it says in this last verse, ministered to him. When it comes to the thought of depression, um, guys, I, I know in looking at the life of Elijah, this doesn't touch everything. So let me encourage you this way. If, if you want to read a great book or resource on depression, Ed Welch is a wonderful Christian counselor that wrote a great book on depression. In fact, uh, 
Foundations of Christian Counseling, which is a foundation that has multiple sites for Christian counseling. I asked them what book they would recommend for depression. This is the number one book that they suggested to me. Um, You know, I think about the life of Elijah. I know it may sound a, a bit morbid, but I find comfort in seeing Elijah battle and struggle. It's a part of life. And uh, seeing that God's people aren't separate or distant from it, I think helps us understand um, that there's healthy ways to move forward. And one of the great things to always recognize, I think, is that in the life of Elijah, and it's true for us, is that God was always with him. Yes, things were hard, but God never gave up. God cares. And can I tell all of us today that Jesus wants to meet with you in the same way. He's powerful, yet God desires to whisper in your soul the strength that you need. He provides rest and truth. He doesn't ask you to be like others, but he does provide others to encourage you in the truth which, we, which he's given. When you look at the life of Elijah, you can use these tools that God's given Elijah to to have these same battles in your own life against depression. I think every one of us at some point would have needed or we do need the same tools that Elijah had to use uh, in in these circumstances that he faced. We all have battles. Pity battles even. Don't compare yourself to others. Let Jesus be your place of grace. Rest in him. You aren't Superman. Hold to truth, not half-truths. Find redeeming relationships that invest in your life as much as you invest in theirs. Because even if bad things happen, and they will, Jesus said in John 16, verse 33, take heart, for I have overcome the world. At the end of your day, when your hope rests not in what is around you, but what is to come, at the end of the day, there is always victory. And Jesus did that for you. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.